Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor to Investors Chronicle, Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang and Special Guest Adrian Lowcock, Head of Investing at AXA Wealth. Investors, particularly those focused on income, are painfully aware that the search for yield has become harder, with poor rates of interest from bank accounts and prices of assets that do have a yield pushed up as desperate investors pile in. But an asset class that does continue to offer what seems like a more attractive income is high-yield bonds, an area Kate has been looking at. Kate, first of all, what are high-yield bonds and what levels of income do they offer? Well, high-yield bonds are just bonds or debt issued, which has a lower quality credit rating than investment grade, corporate bonds or government bonds. So does that mean they're more likely to default? Yeah, the default risk is higher and that's why the income's higher because obviously you're being compensated for taking a bigger risk. And I think generally speaking, the, the income or the yield tends to be kind of 2 to 3% higher than you might get on government bonds. But but obviously that moves around and, and that is kind of the point of this article that you, you can take advantage when that difference, when that spread mm-hmm. becomes larger. So what would be, I mean, government bonds, some of them yield zero. So what would be a yeah. typical yield on a high yield bond? Would it only be 2 or 3% or would you, could you expect to get something a good bit higher? Well, it varies. Some of them 2, 3, but you could go up to six, seven. I mean, it completely depends on which you're looking at on the country or on the issuer. As you mentioned in the article, some institutional investors such as fund managers are really keen on high yield bonds at the moment. What's the reason for this? Well, they were particularly keen at the start of the year because, I mean, we all know that the start of the year was particularly dramatic. We had these big market falls And so everyone was piling out of, or retail investors particularly, were piling out of anything that seemed riskier, um, which obviously includes high-yield bonds, anything that could have been likely to default and not pay you back. So we had this tanking of the high-yield bond market in Europe and the US, and actually a lot of institutions were seeing that as a good time to get in because they were thinking this market is overly bearish and it's pricing in levels of default that we just don't think is realistic. So actually that meant that the yield and the price on those bonds became quite appealing. And now it's a trickier argument. <laughs> I mean, the the point is that the kind of opportunity is still there, but it's closing fast because actually the institutions all got in and were buying at great prices. And so the high yield market since then has rallied. Um, so we're seeing that, that spread between the yield and high yield in government close in quite a bit. So is it still a good time for private investors to get exposure to high yield bonds? Well, many are arguing that yes, it is still a good time, that there is still an opportunity there uh, to take advantage of now. And that's just because this spread, so that yield between high yield and other types of bond is still wider than average. And they also argue that particularly in Europe, and there is distinction here between Europe and the US, um, US high yield market tends to be more concentrated in energy companies, which obviously are quite high risk. And you might not want to be taking risk on an energy company right now. Europe is a different structure, the European high yield market, far less concentration in energy um, and you also have QE. You have this recent ECB announcement that Mario Draghi made in March that the ECB will be buying corporate debt as well as government debt. And what that means is that you will have more investors flowing out of corporate debt into high yield looking for that income, which is likely to push up the market. You also have accommodative policy across Europe supporting 
all markets, kind of equities and bonds there. So there, there are arguments to say, you know, default has been or the risk of default has been overstated. So this is income at an arguably kind of good risk reward level. Um, and with the spread still being wider than average now is a good time, but the opportunity is kind of closing. Okay. Um, now that does sound enticing, but um, as you did mention, it's a higher risk asset class. How risky is it? And is it suitable for all investors? Um, well, I mean, it is obviously higher risk than uh, government bond. It's, well, it's higher risk than other bonds and the concept of being concentrated in one thing like this is obviously higher risk anyway. Um, you can access things like European high yield via funds, um, funds and ETFs. So I've had a look at a couple of open-ended funds which do that. But arguably, you might want to spread out the risk a little bit by maybe going to a high yield fund, bond fund, which invests in high yield bonds across the world, not just in Europe. And there are several open-ended options that do that, which I've had a look at in this feature. And then you can also look at ETFs, which give you very targeted ways to play either European high yield, high yield generally, um, or whatever. You can have the whole mix. Adrian, do you think exposure to high-yield bonds is a good idea for private investors at the moment? Uh, so I think Kate's right. The The opportunity has has come in somewhat as, as people have become perhaps a little bit less risk-averse than they were at the beginning of the year. But there is still plenty of opportunity there, and in particularly, as mentioned, in the European high-yield sector where the quality of the bonds is higher than in the US. There's less exposure to this energy sector, less exposure to, a mod- uh, to commodities. Um, and default rates are lower, expected to be lower in the EU because of uh, quantitative easing, provi- easing providing some support and, and lower interest rates. The U- Europe, we've got to remember, is much uh, further behind the US in terms of this uh, cycle from recovery from the uh, financial uh, crisis. So high yield bonds offer a an attractive yield and I mean, one fund I picked out was the Threadneedle European High Yield Fund, which is run by Michael Poole. Uh, it's returned 9.15% over 12 months compared to the global bond sector returning 3.4 percent um has a yield of over five percent so in this environment where we've still got negative interest rates particularly in the u.s uh, sorry in europe uh, japan and, and possibly those will go out further mm. um then a yield of five percent plus is very attractive mm. and we don't know what the U- interest rate outlook is in the uk for the time being probably not going to see a rate rise this year so real yields are very attractive yeah. Now, um, you and Kate have both said that the US is looking a bit risky with um, the energy companies and Europe's attractive. So when investors are picking a high-yield bond fund, should they just focus on the ones that um, concentrate on Europe or could they consider perhaps ones of a wider exposure so or any other regions? So I think if you're, if you're investing, you've got to think what type of investor you are. So if you're an active investor, then focusing on something like a European high-yield bond fund is fine because you can manage that portfolio mm decide when to get out. But if you're perhaps less engaged and less active, then losing a strategic bond such as Artemis Strategic Bond Fund will give you that broader approach. Or you could get a manager like Jim Levis, who runs the M&G Global Macro Mm. Bond Fund, who also likes European high yield at the moment and has some positions in in interesting areas such as uh, banks, but only the national champions where he he sees that they'll they'll survive any any issues. Um, But he has a huge amount of flexibility in that bond fund and can move anywhere. So for those who are perhaps less active and and want, want somebody who's a bit more flexible, those sort of funds will be more suitable. On the subject of alternatives, we've mentioned that 
high yield bond funds are risky. Are strategic bond funds also suitable, let's say, for perhaps an investor who is active but has a lower risk appetite, or what? What could they consider? So, so yeah, strategic bond funds are probably a really good core sort of bond fund to have because the managers can sort of move the risk around. But if you're more mm. cautious, you need to probably something a little bit perhaps uh, lower risk to, to complement that and remove re- the risk down the scale, if you like. So, the Fidelity Money Builder Income Fund uh, is is quite a good fund that we could do that and you could go for investor petrol corporate bond fund they, they they're on the lower risk scale but with that you get lower yield and you get a higher sensitivity to interest rate movements so if interest rates rise you you could see the the capital mm. value fall and you could lose money so there is still risk there um but the key is having a diversified portfolio and if you're after income that's also very important as well yeah. Okay. You also explored alternatives to high yield bond funds in the article for, let's say, investors with a, I don't know, a lower risk, a different profile. What did you find um, sort of like suitable for investors um, in that space? Um, yeah. Also, just looked at strategic bond funds being being the obvious area where uh, you are, you know, you have that diversification, but also you're kind of putting your faith in a manager who is able to move around depending on which bit of the bond market does best. Um, so I looked at things like um, Jupiter Strategic Bond, M&G, UK Inflation Linked Corporate Bond, obviously they're bringing in some protection if we do get inflation and if rates do rise in the future. Um, and then also looked at actually Kames absolute return bond fund which is very very defensive the point there just being to hold on to your money no matter what happens basically i also looked at etfs uh, but that was kind of less of a defensive play and more targeted great some interesting suggestions there thank you kate and adrian now in this week's issue emma has also been looking at higher yielding investments but this time vine investment trust henderson high income this trust has some of its assets in bonds but for the most part is focused on UK equities. Emma, the UK equity market has hit the headlines recently because of all the dividend cuts, but the manager of this trust doesn't seem to be too concerned. Why is this? Yes, Leonora, David Smith, who's the manager of Henderson High Income Trust, um, says he's not overly concerned that further dividend cuts will hit his trust revenue. And to give you some context, his trust has managed a 67 annualised return over the last 10 years and is currently yielding 5%, over 5%. So it's a strong performer. Um, the reason he says he's not too worried about further dividend cuts is because he thinks that cuts are more likely in the F, um, FTSE 100, especially the very biggest companies. But he feels there's lots of opportunities further down the scale um, in the FTSE 250 and other small cap indices. And that's where he's aiming to get his dividend growth from going forwards. Now, um, he set out some, I think, some areas and shares that he was interested in and uh, where he's getting his income from. You know, what Mm. are examples of of some of these areas and and companies? Well, as well as focusing on companies further down the market cap, he's actually looking at three different types of companies to maintain the trust income. Um, In particular, he's looking at quality cyclical companies, um, which are companies that he says are able to grow their dividends aggressively because they're at the right point of economic cycle. Um, And he's also looking at stable growth companies, companies that have strong, um, resilient business models and are not particularly reliant on the economic outlook to do well. 
Um, and thirdly, what he says he's he's focusing on are companies which he simply calls the cash cows. Um, these are companies that can be relied upon to pay a dividend, have a high yield and solid financials that he's confident in, in particular um, cash generation. So some of the companies that he's been adding recently include ITV, Cranswick, AstraZeneca and Green King. Okay, um, that sounds like a good solid base. So um, is this investment trust likely to be able to maintain its dividends? Um, well, he would say yes. And the trust strong performance does suggest that they're doing something right. Um, but they also have another advantage because they are an investment trust. And um, the thing with an investment trust is that they're able to hold back some of their revenue in good years and um, use it to maintain dividends for investors when things don't go so well. So that should help them to maintain their dividend if performance um, or further dividend cuts are experienced. Okay, so uh, looks like it's going well for that trust. But um, Adrian, more widely, do you think investors should have exposure to UK equity income shares or funds which invest in them in view of the fact that many of these companies have been cutting their dividends? So UK equity income, I mean, the outlook is is is, is actually a bit mixed. So uh, you've got sectors like the commodities sector and the miners, which are really looking like they're going to be cutting their dividends further. So investors do need to sort of be conscious that they could see further dividend cuts in the UK and therefore it's very important to sort of diversify away from this. But even core fund managers, UK equity income fund managers already doing something about this. So Neil Woodford, who runs the uh, CF Woodford Equity Income Fund, very famous manager, he doesn't hold any miners. He's avoiding areas like the banks where you've got bit of mixed singles with Lloyds are rising, raising a dividend and Barclays cutting a dividend. But he's also avoiding telecoms with the exception of BT, which he holds. So he's already positioned the portfolio to protect against further dividend cuts. However, the most important thing is if you're after equity income, it's getting that diversification. So global income is very, very good way of perhaps getting further diversification. So look outside the UK. And uh, there's a manager of the Fidelity Global Dividend Income, Daniel Roberts. And he looks basically to grow uh, the income ahead of inflation um, and get a yield that's 25% greater than the MSE or Country World Index. Um, very concentrated fund, about 50 holdings, and he can go anywhere. So he doesn't have to sort of buy the dividend risk areas, if you like, and, and, and spread. it's a good complement to a UK equity income investment. And you can read some other suggestions for global equity income funds in our IC Top 100 funds. Now, we've also been talking about bonds. So if you're deciding where to get income, how would you say equity income stacks up against high-yield bond income at the moment? So I think the key thing here is that it's important to have the diversification, so it's good to have both. But the, the difference is high-yield bonds, as by their, by their nature, are higher risk. So if there is a, a, a substantial downturn, and I think we're expecting a, a downturn but not a substantial one globally, but if there is a substantial one, you'll see high-yield bonds at risk of default, and therefore investors may not get their money back. And that's why you get the higher yield. Whereas on the other hand, equity income, the companies that tend to pay dividends tend to be very well run. They tend to be these cash cows. They tend to be a bit more defensive. But you can get dividend cuts. This is going to be more sectorial and the defaults in high-year bonds look sector-focused in the the commodities emerging market sector. Um, So I think equity income is perhaps the more defensive area. High yield is a bit riskier. But by having a blend of both and and getting the good manager in the high-yield bond sector and, and equity income sector for that matter, you'll get a manager who avoids the risk areas and gives you some defense. So I think... Uh, if you're a cautious investor, probably more in the equity income. If you're a higher risk investor, you get that bit, bit of, 
yield pickup that gives you a better return. Um, but you have to sort of let the managers run with it and, 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 and ride through any volatility that you may see, particularly this year. Okay, some useful pointers there. And you can read the full interview of Henderson High Incomes Manager in this week's issue of the magazine and online. Now, it's one year since pensions freedoms were introduced, which, among other things, allow those over the age of 55 to cash in the entire pension pot. Emma, you've been looking at this one year on. Um, Have loads of investors cashed in their pensions pots? Um, Well, no, they haven't, Leonora. Um, You might remember that when these new pension freedoms were announced, there was a sort of lot of worry that thousands of people would um, simply blow the lot on Lamborghinis and 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 the like. Um, But thankfully, that hasn't been the case at all. In fact, the evidence suggests people have been cashing in relatively modest amounts um, in most cases. So, for example, the pension provider AJ Bell found that only 1% of people who withdrew funds from them in the last year cashed in the whole of their pension pot. But the majority, which was about 80%, um, of those pots were under £30,000. So relatively modest amounts there. People are holding back so far. But um, I suppose you could say, um, in theory, um, as long as people don't buy a Lamborghini, pension freedoms do give investors a lot more options and planning options. So will this be a good thing in the years to come for savers and investors? Um, I think I think it will, but perhaps it's a bit too soon to kind of, you know, say for definite. Um, some of the pension experts we spoke to said that they were worried by the amount of complexity um, that people have to deal with now when deciding what to do with their pension. And in particular, they're worried that the amount of choice and offer, the complexity surrounding it might confuse people and sort of um, also put some people off even thinking about it. So causing them to become disengaged from that. And some of the other people we spoke to were concerned about the political uncertainty surrounding pensions. In the last few decades, there have been so many changes to the system. And they're worried that actually that could cause people to save less as a result because they're not sure that um, by the time they get to retirement, the vehicles they've been saving in are still going to be there. So that's a real um, potential issue as well. But on the plus side, as you say, we do have more flexibility now. We have more choice and control over what we do with our pensions. So, you know, that is a good thing. It's just a matter of becoming more engaged and aware of the options that we do have. Yeah. Now, in terms of the complexities and the problems, um, what can investors do to address these? Um, Well, basically, it's it's kind of what I've said, which is um, becoming more aware of the options, um, engagement and education. So the pensions experts that we spoke to said that people will need to monitor their pensions um, much more, even after the retirement so it's important to make sure you also take advantage of the information and advice that's out there. Um, for example, the government's pension-wise um, service, which hasn't actually been utilised as much as, as people were expecting it might be. And that's free as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's free and, mm. and people are able to get a free 45-minute mm. um, interview with an, with an advisor. So something to consider there. Um, the other sort of really simple but very you know important thing to do is just check what kind of charges or penalties um, might apply if you are going to be making changes to um, your pension. It's always good to be aware of that. Okay. Now, Adrian, are there any potential pensions problems or mistakes that you'd like to warn investors about? So I think there's probably two key things that I think you, you need to do. And I think Emma's, Emma's addressed sort of highlighted one of them, which is 
actually do something go and find out what your situation is because the more you know the more confident you'll be and more equipped you will be to do something about it but I think the second one is also um, particularly for those who have the pension freedoms and it's good news that effectively these freedom rules are being used for what they were intended for which is to release these small pots but going forward you need to really think about your retirement over the longer term. And as, as humans, we're very bad at thinking longer term. You know, if we think beyond a year, it's a miracle. And uh, you need to think, you know, it could be 20, 25 years that you need your pension to last. So think about what your income expectations are over that period. And, and there's a, a simple diagram saying uh, that's called the retirement smile, which is basically in your early years of retirement, you need a high, high disposable income. You're maybe going uh, traveling around, visiting family, possibly going on holiday a bit more, maybe paying off the mortgage so you need a bit more disposable income um, and then there's a sort of period in the middle where you have uh, perhaps uh, settled down a little bit you're not spending so much money and then at the end at the end the, the spending picks up on on things like longer term healthcare costs and that sort of thing having having an idea of what your outgoings are going to be through that period and, and planning to last the thing is we don't know when we're going to die so we can't just say well the cutoff is 25 years but you need to plan to last money to outlast you actually and outlive you so that you don't run out of money at the end um, and that's really important and think longer term. Thank you, Adrian. And um, also check out Emma's article in this week's magazine for further pensions, freedom pitfalls that you should avoid. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Adrian Lowcock, Head of Investing at AXA Wealth, Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. You can read more on high-yield bonds and bond funds, how to generate an income and pension freedoms in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.